Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning, everybody. And by the way, Emma, that was a great song. I thought the worship team did a, did a tremendous job. I didn't give them a round of applause. I remember you have always been faithful to me, even if my eyes could not see. Well, good morning again. Well, we're going to talk about storms today. Actually, let me give you a picture that Rembrandt painted a long time ago in a land far away. And that was his rendition of what the disciples looked like on the Sea of Galilee. Storms. Sometimes in life, storms come and we're expecting them. But sometimes they just come into our lives seemingly out of nowhere. And when I say storm, I'm talking about a metaphor for difficulty in our own lives, hardships, trials, or even a tragedy. A storm could be a broken relationship. Maybe you're going through a financial crisis. Maybe you were laid off at work, you're facing legal problems or unpleasant, painful health issues. It might be the inevitable effects of age, a stroke, a heart attack. It might be a storm in the form of rebellious children or even as my kids share, a crazy parent. Maybe you are struggling with an inner conflict right now. And what about the COVID storm that still rages worldwide? There are so many life storms that come. They can be game-changing, like the death of a loved one. And I know that one as well with the passing of my mother recently. Storms can wreak havoc in our life, but storms happen. And there are three kinds of people in life, those who are going into a storm, those who are in the storm, and those that are coming out from a storm only to have it happen again. But I ask this question, which one are you? The good news, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are his disciple, God is always with you in every storm that you are going through and are going to face in life. You do not have to be afraid. And I realize that this is easier said than done. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wrapped it up with these words. He said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and it beat on that house, but it did not fail, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain will descend, the floods will come, the winds will blow, it will beat on that house, and it fell, and great was that fall. Notice in those verses, it doesn't talk about if the rain will fall, but when the rain will fall, because it will fall, and the storms will come. And the Bible says that it rains both on the righteous and the unrighteous in Matthew 5. Now, you might remember a story from a number of years ago called The Perfect Storm, And that was a little snapshot of that storm way back when. And that was a movie starring George Clooney and Matt Wahlberg. It was based on a true event of a megastorm that happened in the fall of 1991 off the coast of Massachusetts. I think of that storm now called Ida that's racing toward the Gulf Coast today. And some of you might have family and friends and relatives here, but we should be prayer for them and their safety. And this perfect storm was called because that storm, three distinct storms combined into one in the Atlantic Ocean and created an amazing, powerful storm. 
Two existing were hit by a hurricane, ironically called Hurricane Grace. Who names a Hurricane Grace? And it converged into a megastorm, and at one point, this perfect storm had a 100-foot wave face. That's just beyond the pale. A lot of life was lost in that horrible storm. And there's a story in Matthew 14 of the disciples facing a storm. You could also call theirs a perfect storm in a way because what came out of it had significance in their world. It's a story of how the Lord worked through a stormy circumstance, and it has a lot to say to us today. But I want to start, if we can, in the passage that we're going to read, and I want to set this up. And boy, as I was studying this past week, I forgot this, and it was like a whack on the back of the head. In Matthew 14, we have Matthew's perspective of what happened on that ship. But we also have another rendition in Mark, because Mark was on that boat, and we also have a rendition from John. All three of those disciples were on the boat. So next time when you read this particular passage or this particular story of the, uh, again, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, remember that there were three eyewitnesses that shared their thoughts. And they're each so very, very different. But to set this passage up, let's kind of lay some groundwork if we can. Uh, probably a few weeks before this particular event was occurring, remember this is now in the third year of Jesus' ministry. And believe it or not, the disciples still don't know who Jesus really is. Almost three years of walking with him, but still wonderment as to who he is. He also went to his hometown in Nazareth and he was rejected where the scripture talks about that not even a prophet is welcome in his hometown. Family and friends who knew him, but rejected in that town. During that time, he also sent the 12 out with empowerment to go perform miracles and to serve and do ministry. And then, of course, a few weeks earlier, we had the murder of John the Baptist. It was his cousin. And if you recall, Herod was with Herodias, which was his brother's Philip wife. And one night, Herod had a big party. And he offered to Herodias' daughter, if she was to dance for him, whatever she asked for, he would provide. And of course, after the dance was done, he had to honor the request, and it was a simple one from Herodias' daughter. It was the head of John the Baptist brought to her on a platter. That was Jesus' first cousin. Now, this night, the 12 disciples return after they had been out in ministry, and Jesus realizes they're tired, they're hungry, and he wants them to find a restful place. But guess what? The crowds have been following them now. All of the work that they've been doing have been like magnets to draw all of these individuals in. And so now Jesus is about to feed the 5,000. But it actually wasn't 5,000. Most scholars believe it was between 15 to 20,000 individuals at that time. So get your markers, change your 5,000 in your Bible to 15 or 20,000. Please make sure that's done. Think about that. 15 to 20,000 people would be the population of Addison or Stephenville. Now does the feeding of these individuals have context? He's about to feed the entire population of Addison, Texas or Stephenville, Texas. Remarkable. But during that time, the disciples see all these people and say, we, we got to get rid of them because we're hungry. And then what does Jesus say to his disciples? You give them something to eat. I'm sure that went over really well. And at that point, a couple of them panicked and somebody happened to find a young boy that had some fish and some bread. And so they grabbed it and said, Lord, this is what we have. 
And then Jesus had them put them in groups of 50 and 100. That's a lot of groups of 50 and 100, isn't it? Between 15,000 and 20,000 people. Remarkable. But he does. And then what happens, miraculously, he starts multiplying the bread into more bread. He multiplies the fish into more fish. Everybody of those 15,000 in Addison or 20,000 in Stephenville were satisfied. And then an irony came up. There was 12 baskets that were remaining, were there not? He collects 12 baskets. Let's see, I think there are 12 disciples, are they not? And I think that was an intentional dig to remind them that I can do more than you realize because I am the Son of God. He set that up because these were men that weren't prepared to be able to provide food or sustenance for those individuals. So he has 12 baskets of food for them to remind them, I can do what I can say. With me, there is nothing that is impossible. But then what happens at that point in time, Jesus commands his disciples to get into the boat and to go on to the other side. He dismisses the crowd that wants food. As a matter of fact, in Mark's gospel, it's interesting. Jesus sensed that they wanted to make him king. But Jesus said, no king because no cross has happened yet. Not going to happen. So he does two things. He sends the disciples in the, in the boat to go across the Sea of Galilee. And then he dismisses the crowd that wants food. And then he goes and prays alone. Remarkable turn of events that were taking place there. So if we can, let's read the passage in Mark, Matthew 14, because Daniel read us from Mark 6. Immediately, Jesus and his disciples get into the boat, or made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He sent them, they sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And now evening had come, and he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, between four and five in the morning, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out with fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, take courage. I am, do not be afraid. It says it is I, but the literal translation is I am. The same I am that was told of Moses in the Old Testament, when you go to Israel, tell them I am that I am sent you. Jesus is saying, I am. They understood that, that at that point he's saying, I am God who made this world. And then he said, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, will you command me to come to you on the water? And Jesus says, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. One of the shortest prayers in the Bible. Lord, save me. One of the neatest prayers that can bring you to salvation. Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. It was like crystal clear water. No different than what had happened in Mark 4. If you recall, when the disciples were ministering, Jesus got into the boat exhausted from ministry, and he was in the back of the ship, and he was laying on the back end asleep. And then this same storm comes up. And they're all freaked out saying, Lord, we're going to die. Why aren't you saving us? And Jesus wakes up and says, peace. And the water became like crystal. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, you truly are the son of God. Okay, that's our start for this morning to kind of set us up. 
There's a prevailing thought that once we start following Jesus Christ and walk in obedience, that life will become smooth sailing. And that simply isn't true. Storms and hardships, difficulties are going to come. And Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. The bad news is no matter what, storms are inevitable. The good news is that as a follower of Christ, you will learn through these storms. And at the appointed time, we will have a great victory. Think of it this way, where there are no trials in life, there are no triumphs. It has also been said that the hammer that shatters glass also forges steel. Did Jesus know the storm was waiting? Let me think about that for a second. Of course he did. Yes, he did. And he would use it for their own personal benefit. Here is something to consider. Sometimes the things we dread most can actually be the best things for us. You can be sure they looked out on the Sea of Galilee as seasoned fishermen who've been on that body of water many times. And the disciples could see that a storm was brewing, but to their credit, they got in the boat and they began to row in the direction of the other side. The master told them to row to the other side, go to the other side, which meant they had to go right through the eye of that potential storm. Jesus told them cross over, and that is what they were going to do. And our security is not in the place of easy circumstances, but it's in the place of obedience to the will of God. Here's another important thing to know. Storms don't last forever. They don't last forever. Hardships don't last forever. The Bible says our present troubles are small, and they won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever, 2 Corinthians 4. Again, the troubles you see now will soon be over. But the joy to come will last forever. So what can we learn from this text about the storms of life? Well, you know, I was thinking about this. If I could create it, this would be my bumper sticker. Storms happen. Now, some of you are probably thinking of another colloquial term that's on the back of bumper stickers, but we can't use that in church on Sunday morning. But we can say storms happen. And this story happened on the Sea of Galilee. This one is God-ordained, and it's a divine appointment. And yes, you can be both in the center of God's will and in a storm at the same time. Let me repeat. You can be in the center of God's will and in a storm at the same time. So let's review, if we can, real quickly from the passage. Immediately, Jesus, again, got into the boat, made his disciples get into the boat and go before them to the other side. He sends the multitude away. And when he sent them away, then he goes on the mountain by himself to pray. And then when evening came, he was alone there. But that boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. You know, I started asking myself this. Why was there this urgency to get his disciples in that boat? I mean, the big miracle at that time was feeding the 15 to 20,000 Addison residents, Stephenville residents. In fact, this is the only miracle that's in all four Gospels. And it's interesting that this was his most popular miracle because obviously receiving sight is great, raising dead people is amazing, but boy, getting a free lunch is pretty cool. Now we're talking. But after everyone was fed, the 12 baskets of food remained. I can just hear the crowd saying, we love you, Jesus, and we want you as king right now. But one gospel said they wanted to take him by force. You are going to be our king if you want to or not. And by the way, where's dinner? 
That was their mentality. They were fed once, they wanted to be fed again. So he sends off his disciples, he dismisses the crowd, and he goes off to pray. So again, storms happen, that's our bumper sticker, right? God allows us to go through storms, but sometimes we bring storms upon ourselves unnecessarily. And that's as a result of often our disobedience and foolish choices. A perfect example in the scriptures might be Jonah. God wanted him to go speak to the inhabitants of Nineveh, and he decided to not. And the next thing you knew, what happened to him? He took a very short trip and a long fish and was in the belly of a whale for three days, and then he was spit back onto the shore. What would that have been like, being in the gut of that fish for three days? That still just amazes me to think about that. But there are storms that can come as a result of our obedience to God. Think about Moses. He went through a lot of hardship because he obeyed the Lord. You know, if Daniel simply refused to pray, he wouldn't have spent the night in the lion's den. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? If they would have bowed before the golden isle, they would not have been cast into the fiery furnace. But because they obeyed God, there were special blessings for them. The Bible says our present troubles are a small and they won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them that will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, for the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever in 2 Corinthians. And there are lessons for us to learn in these storms that you just can't learn anywhere else. There are some biblical promises also that we would rather like to forget. I mean, even 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, I have not been to many people's houses that have that verse hanging on the wall. Have you seen that? I mean, who wants to put that verse up? But it's just as true as Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good that those that love God. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. In Acts 14, verse 22, we see the apostles visiting a church, but they told these people this, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Many of us have memorized Psalm 23. What a beautiful picture it paints. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me by the still waters and he restores my soul. But then David, a few verses later, continues on to say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So I started thinking in the scriptures, are there some other examples that we can look at? Where people had to suffer through, not by their choice, but because of the life they had to live. And I immediately went to Job in the Old Testament, and I kept thinking of this conversation that Satan's having with God in heaven. And then God throws out the line, have you considered my servant Job? Well, that tells me there's a list, and I want to be on the far back end of that list as much as I can. But he put Job out there, and we saw what happened where Job lost everything. Even his wife said, curse God. But Job remarkably said, what shall we receive good from the hand of God and not evil may it never be. He understood what that was about. You see, sometimes, sometimes we bring storms upon ourselves unnecessarily because of disobedience. 
God is God and he works all things, including your life, according to his purpose, and nothing can happen without God ordaining it. So think of it this way. God allows us to go through storms. And again, Christians are not exempt on this one. And the scriptures remind us every day that it rains on the just and the unjust. Next, storms will serve the purposes of God. And I like this one. Storms don't create who we are. They reveal who you are. Let me repeat that. They don't create who you are. They reveal who you are. And then finally, storms remind us of God's promises. And I love this verse from 1 Peter, because remember, Peter was on this boat. So Peter, in the context of the experience he had with the Lord Jesus before he died, writing 1 and 2 Peter, comes out and says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. You may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in the praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Remarkable. Peter could not have said that before that short boat ride for nine hours of heavy rowing in the Sea of Galilee. But he did. Jesus is part of the triune Godhead. He created all things. And the sovereign creator of heaven and earth is telling them to go now to the other side. But he will use this storm to remind them of those promises of God. And may I add, too, we have added on our church website a, a PDF that you can get. And it's a ministry I found called 365. And what this individual did was there's over 8,000 promises plus in the Word of God. Can anybody repeat them? But we decided to put 365 of them on a page that they put together. So there's a PDF, and they have it for each day of the year. So you can kind of catch up on yourselves and start now and move forward. But those verses are remarkable. And again, as we listen and savor God's word, it helps us stay focused on him, which we'll learn about the importance of that in a moment. So Jesus, again, part of that Godhead, he will use the storm to remind us of his own promises. And when we trust the promises of God, we can endure the storm until the end. Romans 8.28 says, we know that all things work uh, for good for those that love him who have been called according to his purpose. So remember, go to the promises when the storm hits. Now, what I love about it is when they are in the storm, guess what? Jesus was praying for them, and I want to remind you that Jesus is still praying for you and me. In 1 John 2, 1, it says that we have an advocate with the Father. In Romans 8, 34, Jesus intercedes for us, and Jesus knows what his disciples are going through in this storm. He's aware of what you and I go through in our storms. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and now interceding on our behalf during whatever we are going through. And not only is Jesus praying for us in the storm, but guess what? We also know that God sees us when we don't see him. How many have felt that? Amen. God sees us when we don't see him in the storm. In Mark's gospel, it's quite interesting. There's an additional detail. He saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. So if you look at that again, it's almost identical passage. And we talk about that again. He said, get into the boat. Mark says that too as well. And then Jesus was left alone on the land. And then he was praying. But look what it says on Mark 6, 47 and 48 at the bottom. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. I mean, what an attestation for the omniscience of God. 
And then the attestation of the omnipotence of God that he can control the storm that they were now in. This was the God who made the very earth that he was now walking on. This was the God that created the world and the universe and the stars and the sands on the seashore. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Remember the hymn, His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he's watching me. He's watching over you. And also, Jesus also comes to us always at the right time. It never fails in the Scripture. It may not be the time that we want, but it will always be the right time and the appropriate time when he comes. Think about this. After watching them, Jesus came. But when did he come? And I think it was at that last moment possible. In verse 25 of Matthew 14, it says, On the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them. They had been in that boat, scholars think, between six to nine hours, rowing feverishly, and they got in the middle of that, of that lake, and they were stuck there. It says Sea of Galilee, but it was fresh water, so it's really just a big lake. And to give you a context of that lake, about 11 and a half miles long, about eight and a half miles wide. 11 and a half miles long, eight and a half miles wide, and they are smack dab stuck in the middle. And they were rowing the entire time. Fourth watch is that last part of the evening. It's around 4.30 or 5 in the morning. And again, this meant that Jesus and his, or Jesus' disciples would have been at sea for at least nine hours, most of them spent by the fierce storm. <clears throat> and again, he wanted them to be exhausted of all their resources. And I thought of this as well. Sometimes maybe the Lord will let us come to the end of ourselves so that we come to the beginning of him. Storms will also <clears throat> remind us of the power of God. And I love this one because this is when Jesus comes to them, right? So how did Jesus come for them? Verse 25 says, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And this is why I love this passage because he's walking on the sea like I could walk across this stage area right now. It meant nothing to him. It was the waves didn't bother him, nothing. He walked through it like it was nothing. And it was to him because he made the nothing that was now creating havoc in the disciples' world. Look at that contrast. You have somebody that literally walked off the shore onto the Sea of Galilee and was walking toward them at just the right time. Understand, it wasn't like a glassy service, he's cruising in, but there he was with these big waves all around, and all over these waves, he's walking toward them, and we ask, why did he walk in? And I really think it was to show the disciples that the very thing they feared, the wind and the sea and the storm, was only a staircase for him to come to them. Remarkable. In effect, Jesus was saying, hey, here's your problem, here's what you fear, and here I am in the middle of it, and it's not a problem, guys. Don't worry. Mark 46, 47 says, later that night in the boat, again, in the middle of the lake, and he was alone, and he saw them. Remarkable. But I think what got me on that one was I started to try to think about it. You know, how were the disciples thinking? Because in Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus was going to pass them by. Have you read that? Let's see if we can pull that up again. Well, I don't have that, I apologize. But in, in Mark's gospel, what Jesus does is said he was going to pass them by. I mean, think about that. You have these guys straining in their boat, 
And Jesus just comes cruising by like, hey, how you guys doing? He was going to pass them by. So if you're in that boat straining and you see your master just walking without effort at all, what are you thinking? And then I kept trying to figure, why would Jesus do that? And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. These men were steeped in the Old Testament, so there must be something that I can find there that might give me some insight and perspective. Because I know the disciples lived and breathed the scriptures. They wanted to know who this Messiah was. And they knew from childhood that Old Testament scriptures, only God walked on water. So now that forced my hand to say, can I find some verses that validate that in fact, God walks on water? How about these, Job 9.8? God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Job 38.16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? And remember, those statements that God was making was when he was having a conversation with who? Job. He's saying, you didn't do that, but I did that. And then finally, in Psalm 77, 19, it says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. So it was not uncommon for the disciples, again, to think of God walking on the water. There were some principles they could point to. But, but I thought, but what's the point, though? Again, and maybe this is where that second issue is. First, in walking on the water, Jesus is doing what only God can do. The fact that he's walking and they're straining, he's trying to demonstrate that I'm in control and you're not. Because you're going to find in this passage that what Jesus was worried about was the hardness of the heart of his disciples. They still didn't know who he was. Even after the feeding of the Addison or uh, down south of us, Stephenville, amount of people that he did by feeding them. So think about this in the Old Testament. I was trying to find a passage that might refer to that concept of passing by. And that really is a rich meaning in the Old Testament, but I'll give you one for time's sake. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, well, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. Same word. And will proclaim before you my name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. I mean, think about that. That's in Exodus chapter 33. In the same way that Moses wanted to see the glory of God, but God said, you can't because you'll die. But I'll pass by you, but I'll cover so you can sufficiently see, again, not my glory. It is so significant, it is so powerful, you could not withstand it. But I will pass by so you can at least as I cover your eyes, get a sense of what that is. So Jesus was doing, and now in the New Testament with his disciples, what God did with Moses. Moses, again, who was going to bring the good news of, of again, the fact that uh, Israel would be removed from Egypt. Now the disciples were going to bring the good news of the Savior who was prophesied that was now about to come. So what happens with these disciples? Well, interestingly, they said, this is a ghost, a ghost and why did they think it was a ghost? Why didn't they know it was Jesus? And the more I've thought about it was, was because they weren't looking for Jesus at that point. I think they just wanted to stay alive. 
Had the disciples been waiting by faith, they would have recognized Jesus immediately, but instead they jumped to a false conclusion thinking he was a phantom, thinking he was a ghost. And that is what Job said in 42.5, after he went through all the calamity, he said to God, I have heard of you by the hearing of your ear, but now my eye sees you. In other words, I have heard all these great things you do, but now I know it by experience. And that's what Jesus was hoping for his disciples. That's what Jesus was hoping after all the time he spent with them, especially with the feeding of Addison and Stephenville, Texas. But their hearts were hardened. Remarkably hardened. But in this passage, as we continue through it, there is never a moment when God's presence is far from us. Think about that. There's never a moment when God's presence is far from us. The very fact that we are in Christ, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit resides within us. So he's with us wherever we go. But sometimes we feel like he's on Mars and we're on Venus. Jesus spoke to them saying, hey, be of good cheer, courage, I am, do not be afraid. And notice that he didn't say, don't be afraid, it is I. He said, be of good cheer, have courage. You see, Jesus is with us in our storms. You are not alone. God is with you in your sorrow. You are not alone. He understands he will give you strength to get through your storm, financial, physical, emotional, legal, and sometimes God takes storms away. Sometimes he will stop them altogether. But he wants us to take heart in the middle of these storms, in the face of danger and uncertainty, because our awareness of God's presence is with us. Isaiah 43.2 says, when you go through the deep waters, interesting, I will be with you. When you go through rivers, of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. So remember, God's ultimate goal is, is not to give us an easy life. God's ultimate goal for us is to make us like Jesus Christ. And he wants to prepare us for heaven. I mean, really, if you think about it, there was an illustration that a pastor did years ago where he got a rope that was about 100 feet long, and on the far end of it, he had maybe a quarter of an inch of black tape on the tail end on this side. And he put it down, and he said, that black tape represents our life. And then he pulled that 100-foot rope all the way down in front of the auditorium, and he said, and the rest of it is eternity. If you think about where we are in the context of life, remind ourselves of who we are in relation to him and in relation to what he is ultimately going to do and provide for us, Right? So again, it's these storms that remind us of God. And in these storms, know that you're not alone. Jesus is right with you now. He's walking with you through it. Again, David said back in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil, because you are with me. You are with me, and your rod and your staff will comfort me. All right. So let's continue. And I'm going to give you this one. It says, fix not, walk not, fix not, fail not. You think that's a bunch of childhood gibberish. So let me just try to explain it to you. And I, I apologize. After playing collegiate athletics and I was traumatized by football helmets over the years, I may start to drool a little bit and stutter. But bear with me. Here's what I'm going to explain. Fix not, walk not. If you don't fix your eyes on Jesus, what's going to happen? You can't walk toward him, can you? 
Wherever you fix your eyes is where you're going to go. When I played football at that time, when they still allowed us to, to hit somebody on the back of the helmet, we knew that where the head went, the body went. And so as a defensive player who was trying to peacefully get the ball by the running back or whoever had it, we would typically try to get our hand on the back of the helmet and drive that person's face and plant it in the ground so it stayed there forever. I digress. All the moms were going, you did what? The game has changed over the years. But we knew where the, body, where the head went, the body went. It's the same thing here. Fix not, walk not. And if you fix not, you're going to fail a lot. And what I'm trying to emphasize is if we keep fixed our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we will be able to go through the storm. If we don't, we're going to fail a lot because we take our eyes off Jesus and we ended up putting on the very things that are troubling us and that's why those things begin to consume us. So the choice is yours. The choice is yours to fix not, you won't walk not. Fix not, you'll fail a lot, and keep that in mind. And the other thing I want to emphasize as well, too, our ability to walk depends on the focus of our eyes. We need to be focused in the direction of Jesus. And I thought about this. If someone suffers from motion sickness, they need to focus on that which does not move. They need a fixed reference point. And realize that I had a product in the medical world that I've been in for a number of years that we, we sold, and it was for people that had, again, motion sickness. And this device was amazing, but what, what was so curious to me was one out of four people in the U.S. has motion sickness. You know the family member that has to sit in the front seat? We gotta, we gotta help them out. And I also found out too that there are some people that they can't go to lakes or oceans or look at bodies of water because the stimulation and movement of the water triggers that response in them internally. And for people that don't have that problem, they're just going, what's your problem? But for people that do, it's terrible. I feel for them. But the key thing is you need a fixed reference point. And I want to challenge each of us today. Each of us needs that fixed reference point of Christ in the midst of the storm, like person with motion sickness, even though there's movement around them, if they have a fixed point, it settles them. And that really is what God wants to admonish us to do. So what happens in this particular passage, right? Jesus says, be of good cheer, don't be afraid. Then Peter says, what, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So what does Jesus say? Bring it. Come is the old contemporaries, just bring it, Peter, right? And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, this is one of the shortest prayers in the Bible. Lord, save me. And that's one of the shortest prayers for salvation. Lord, save me. And he was saved by his master. And it says, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. You know, I've got to say something. As I was meditating on this passage, I think Jesus wanted everybody out of that boat on the water. Peter was the only one that did. People get on Peter saying, well, you got out and you fell in the water, Peter. The other one stayed in the boat. I truly believe that the intent of Jesus walking in that water was to get every single disciple to walk to him. Only one did. And it reminds me sometimes of all of our inabilities to kind of do the obvious or to be obedient and respond to him. When Peter kept his eyes fixed on Christ, he had no problem. 
When Peter shifted it to look at the wind and how its effect on the sea was, he lost it. But what was amazing was the immediacy with which Jesus pulls him up. And he does the same for us in the midst of the storms that we have and the challenges that we go through. Amazing what Jesus did. And of course, what happens on this one is at the very end, then those, or when they got into the boat, it should say, he said, oh, you little fouls, when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. It went back to crystal water again, just as still as could be. I mean, I, I cannot get that in my mind, but it just emphasizes the omnipotence of God to be able to control that through the person of Jesus Christ. And the disciples had firsthand knowledge. And now, now it says in verse 31, then those who were in the boat came and what? Worshiped him saying, and what did they ascribe to him? Truly, you are the son of God. That's when the disciples believed for the first time. You would have thought it would have been the feeding of Addison and Stephenville. But their heart was hardened. They still didn't get it. So he took them on a boat ride for about nine hours to get his point across. And he did just that. So let me ask you this as we are kind of wrapping this up and going forward. And I think we're at that one. I just got some final thoughts. Remember, storms are going to happen. They're inevitable. We don't have a choice on that. But we can be prepared for them. The folks in Louisiana, always when we go in the south, whether it be down in Houston and Galveston or any time on the Gulf Coast, when these storms hit, people have to start preparing for it, right? And I do feel for the families that, again, are going to be profoundly affected by Ida. Next, once you recognize this, that storms happen, the Bible says we're to walk by faith and not by sight. We have to look at the world differently because we have to look at it through the eyes of what our master would want us to look. And the scripture also says that faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. It ties back to his promises. Just like the disciples really weren't thinking about the promise of getting to the other side that Jesus wanted them to do, they were worried about staying alive in the boat. But I think their world would have changed if they would have realized that's what you're supposed to do, get to the other side. And he promised you that you would, but they weren't thinking about the promise. Their mind and their heart went away from that. Next, it doesn't matter what happens between here and there. They were on this side of the, uh, again, uh, Sea of Galilee. Jesus wanted them on the other side. And all of that in the middle really didn't matter because the promise was you're going to start here and I will get you there. This is just what's going to take place as we go forward in that life we have to live for him. And then remember, the person who made the promise is infinitely greater than the storm. Amen? The God who created the earth can walk above it so when he passes by they get to see the omnipotence of God. But it's greater than the storm. Any storm that we face. And then finally, I love that passage in Job. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear. That interaction that Job had with God as he was speaking to him over those significant number of passages for the tail end of his book, but now my eye sees you. That's when Job finally got back to that attitude that he had after he lost everything. And he realized it was that relationship that he had with God. I want to close, if I can, and just ask you this. What's your storm? What are you going through right now? We can sit in a chair comfortably, but we can be very uncomfortable in our mind and our heart because of events that are taking place. Is it a storm 
related to health? Is it a storm related to relationships? Is it a storm related to a divorce that is about to take place that doesn't have to? My challenge to everybody here, again, is to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured. Let's bow in prayer. Father God, thank you that we have this opportunity to be together. And trials are not easy, Lord God, at all. But we have a God that we can trust in in that trial. We have a God whose presence is with us. We have a God who is praying for us. We have a God who provides us his word that is your eternal word that we can pray back to you. Be mindful of, share with others, and take faith in. Lord, there are people that are sitting here in this auditorium right now that are struggling. They know who they are. Some, Father, might be watching on the internet, and Father, some who might see this video three, four, five months, five years from now. But you'll speak to them. You want to demonstrate that you'll pass by so that we can confirm in the hearts of all those that you are the Son of the living God, and we can have faith in you. My prayer is, Father, is that you help us to fix our eyes, to grow our faith, to take and savor your word so that we can grow in a way that enables us to persevere in the midst of storms, that you enable us to shine forth as we obey you. Father, bless this message in the hearts of those that are hearing it. Bless these families that are in our fellowship today. And Father, I pray, bless those again, that are in the middle of that storm where they can fix their eyes on you and take steps forward. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.